Hello. Welcome to Discovering Jazz, where you and I together discover great music, picking up information to keep jazz old and new alive. My name is Larry Sademan, here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, sponsored by Peterborough Independent Podcasters. Last week, I introduced you to bebop, a genre of jazz that began in the early 1940s and remains in the mainstream of jazz even today. For part two, more of the same, with a bit more focus on the factors that made this music so popular with jazz players and enthusiasts and why it has never really caught on with the public. I do find that most people who say they don't like jazz are referring to jazz that has a bebop influence. You play them swing, even country swing, or old New Orleans-style music, or even the Steely Dan tunes that have jazz riffs, and some of the so-called smooth jazz played on some radio stations, and they're often okay with that. But not this. Donna Lee by Charlie Parker, a standard bebop tune played frequently in jazz circles by very skilled players. It's no wonder it doesn't catch on with the public, even if it does use the chords of a more popular tune called Indiana, or Back Home in Indiana, first recorded in 1917. And many people who take solos do like to quote, 
back home in Indiana in their solo. Let me play a version of that tune so you can see how Donna Lee has used the same chord sequence. Lester Young with the Oscar Peterson Trio featuring Herb Ellis on guitar. Indiana from 1957. Thank you. 
So, believe it or not, both of the tunes that I've played so far have the same chord sequence. First, Donna Lee by Charlie Parker and Miles Davis, and then the old standard Indiana, here played by Lester Young with the Oscar Peterson Trio. So that might provide a bit of the answer as to why bebop became so popular with jazz musicians. Well, even before bebop, it wasn't uncommon to use what is called a contrafact, which is to create a new tune from a chord sequence from a standard. In bebop, it became almost the norm. Great musicians like Charlie Parker would improvise around a tune the group was playing, then use that improvisation as a basis for another tune. Jazz writers Gary Giddens and Scott DeVoe state that bebop tunes were designed to play hide-and-seek with the copyright laws, relieving the record companies of the irritating obligation to pay royalties and leveling the playing field for musicians whose improvisations were not covered by copyright. Unquote. Here's one more example. And again, it's Charlie Parker. Another commonly recorded and performed tune, Ornithology, utilizing the chord changes of How High the Moon, Ted Goya, in his great book, The Jazz Standards, claims that actually it's not a typical bebop melody. It doesn't have the chromaticism or color tones typical of bebop, and it's more typical of Bird's earlier Kansas City jazz roots. But the solos, extremely influential and very much bebop. Here it is. Thank you. 
from 1946, Ornithology, with Charlie Parker, alto sax, Lucky Thompson, tenor sax, Miles Davis, trumpet, Dodo Marmorosa on piano, Arvin Garrison on guitar, Vic McMillan on bass, and Roy Porter drums. The sax playing of Charlie Parker was treated with reverence. Jazz musicians would take a lot of time to transcribe each of Charlie Parker's solos. Ted Goya claims that he was drawn to the almost platonic idea of mathematical precision married to emotional intensity, unquote. Goya suggests that the best way to resonate with Charlie Parker's playing is to sing along to each tune and to each solo. Start with the simplest stuff, maybe Billy's Bounce. Then you'll be immersed in the essence of the bebop sound and you'll find the rhythmic structure of the phrases and you'll internalize the chromaticism and the cadences. So one more Charlie Parker tune, Yardbird Suite. But rather than playing a Charlie Parker version... Here's one where lyrics are added and sung by the great Bob Duro, who is also the pianist here, as well as Bill Takis on bass, Warren Fitzgerald trumpet, Jack Hitchcock vibes, and Jerry Siegel drums. Bob Duro, Yardbird Suite. Hey, jazz fans. I sing this song hoping you'll all find out the man who wrote the Yardbird Suite. Leave you no doubt, tell you about Charles Yardbird Parker was his name The facts, he carved his fame in history A sax for his axe His improvisation was miraculous Mastermind of rhythm was he He blew notes that nobody'd ever heard before Till then, blooms they'd never been So often true as genius seems to do he suffered his life through but gave us to the yardbird sweet all because he never stopped blowing when he had the miserable woes he seemed to pour out his horn and make each person listen and feel that he never known what being low down could be he knew that low and happy music going to set him free he blew and blew and blew until he had the changes had the sound he had them long before we heard him he was just a boy in kansas city so pretty after he came to New York town, all of the local jazz would listen in admiration. But long before his new sound swept round the nation, and Bird deserves the credit for the stimulating renaissance of jazz. It makes us very happy to announce a goodly portion of his best works recorded. Have a treat, hurry right out and get yourself some Yardbird Sweet Blow.
whispered sweet his version should be heard he left the world many more and so if you're interested listen to bird bob duro an example of jazz vocalese where singers would transcribe well-known bebop jazz solos and write lyrics or sometimes just scat them best known of the vocalese artists were john hendrix eddie jefferson and bob duro also, that song gives me an opportunity to put in a pitch for Edmonton's best and oldest jazz club, the Yardbird Suite, a great venue, comforting and non-intimidating, and great music by local and touring artists. Here's another great bebop saxophonist whose name rarely comes up when talking about bebop because he later became more famous as a founder of what is called free jazz. I'm talking about Ornette Coleman. His first two albums were pretty much pure bebop. I discovered them only recently when doing my series on the best of 2022, and I was listening to some historical and re-released albums. The re-release of Coleman's first two albums was entitled The Genesis of Genius, and I was quite surprised at how much I liked it. What I've discovered by listening to those two albums is that so much of those modern jazz albums of original tunes and solos that go off to some crazy and atonal place really isn't all that modern. Ornette Coleman was doing it masterfully in 1959, and unlike a lot of today's archy jazz, most of these tunes have melody, emotion, and a real sense of fun. They may be weird, but they sound so relaxed. Even if Miles Davis at one time called his music a bunch of noise. From the second album, entitled Tomorrow is the Question, here is Tears Inside. You'll notice there is no piano. In fact, no instrument playing the chords to the tune. Just Coleman saxophone, Don Cherry on trumpet, Percy Heath on bass, and Shelley Mann drums. Ornette Coleman.
Definitely Bebop, don't you think? Ornette Coleman and Tears Inside. Let's talk again about what makes it, and most of the other recordings I'm playing today, Bebop. Before Bebop, Big Band Swing had arrangements, with certain band members being given a one-chorus solo opportunity. With Bebop, you'd also start, most often, with the melody of the composition, with the accompaniment of the rhythm section, followed with some improvised solos that often went through the form of the tune a few times for each solo, as the solo would build. Then, like with the older music, it would return to the head. There were also unusual intervals from the root tone of the chord, including altered tones such as flatted fifths and ninths, and improvised lines based on those altered chords, as well as a faster-paced eighth-note feel, where earlier swing music had a quarter-note feel. Another change was the role of the drums. Drummers would play unpredictable accents, referred to as dropping bombs, with a main timekeeping function now being given over to the bass. The biggest change, however, was that musicians focused on their own instrumental prowess and on impressing other jazz musicians, especially other beboppers. And speed was more important than smoothness, complexity over simplicity, and art over entertainment. The musical language of the melodies and harmonies was very advanced, such as the mathematical precision of Charlie Parker's improvisations that I referred to earlier, or another saxophonist who started as a bebopper, John Coltrane. There's even a well-known book by physicist saxophonist Stefan Alexander called The Jazz of Physics, where he argues that John Coltrane and Albert Einstein had a lot in common. And Thelonious Monk said that all musicians are subconsciously mathematicians. I'll play something by each of those artists. First, John Coltrane from his famous Blue Train album of 1957. Here's Lazy Bird with Lee Morgan on trumpet, Curtis Fuller trombone, Kenny Drew piano, Paul Chambers bass, and Philly Joe Jones drums.
John Coltrane, Lazy Bird, from the Blue Train album. I also mentioned something about the mathematics of the music of Thelonious Monk. Monk was a beboper who was very much an exception to what the other beboppers were doing. Ted Goya, in his How to Listen to Jazz book, refers to Monk's hummable melodies and his off-centered and often humorous element that he would add to them. Goya feels that Monk is one composer-performer who operates in a constant flow state. He's a musician who can say the most with the least expenditure of tones, throwing excess baggage overboard. Let's illustrate. Here's a version of T for Two from 1956 with Art Blakey on drums and Oscar Pettiford bass, Thelonious Monk.
Thelonious Monk. Let's do a bit of modern bebop now. Last year, guitarist Pasquale Grasso, known for his bebop guitar style, put out an album called Bebop. I haven't heard it, but let's play the opening track from it that features vocalist Samara Joy, winner of this year's Grammy for Best Jazz Vocalist. can I do? I'm in a mess, I guess. I'm in an awful way. He packed his bag and left me just the other day. We were all so happy. Cooey as two birds. Then he said, I'm leaving. I couldn't believe what I I guess And I'm in an awful spot If I don't find another I'm gonna blow my top Pasquale Grasso with Samara Joy. Before I finish with a bit of a talk about some factors contributing to bebop's takeover of the world of jazz, I want to touch on a bit more about bebop in Canada. In the early 1950s in Montreal, pianist Paul Blay and Keith White formed the Montreal Jazz Society, and bebop became the mainstay. And later, Paul Blay became part of the free jazz movement. But let's hear him playing some bebop from 1989, an album called Bebop, 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 with Bob Cranshaw bass and Keith Copeland drums. This is Charlie Parker's Steeplechase, Paul Blay Trio.
Coldplay Trio. One of the many straight-ahead bebop albums that have been recorded over the years and keep getting recorded. So why did this complex musical form become and remain so popular among jazz musicians and aficionados, despite it never really spreading to the general population? Trombonist Eric Felton addresses this in a national public radio post. A big one, as I mentioned in part one of this series, was the 1944 20% tax imposed on New York nightclubs, with an exception being made if there was no singing or dancing. So these small after-hours non-commercial ensembles now suddenly had a venue. Drummer Max Roach was quoted as saying, you couldn't have a big band because the big band played for dancing. And it led to a wonderful period for the development of the instrumentalist. There were other reasons, too. The World Wars drafted many big band musicians, and popular swing bands had to stop recording during the 1945 strike when their music wasn't allowed to be played on the radio. And when that ban was lifted, small independent labels formed to start recording some of these after-hours bebop groups. Felton asks a very important question. How differently might the aesthetic impulse behind bebop have been expressed if it had been allowed to develop organically instead of in an atmosphere where dancing was discouraged by the tax man? Jazz might have remained a highly sophisticated popular music instead of becoming an artsy niche. I ask a further question. Could bebop have developed into something more commercial and popular? Would swing music have evolved? And how? Would new forms of jazz that were danceable have replaced bebop? I think I want to explore that question next week and maybe talk about the evolution of a swing and other forms of jazz. And let's see what happens. (laughs) And in the meantime, we're playing one more bebop recording for today. This is from Dizzy Gillespie's classic album of 1959, Half Trumpet Will Excite, his bebop rendition of the very first blues tune ever put down on paper. St. Louis Blues, with Junior Vance and Les Spann helping him on piano and guitar respectively, as well as bassist Sam Jones and Les Humphreys on drums. This is Larry Shadman, Discovering Jazz, saying bye for now.